Hello and welcome to Collisions YYC, Follow the Money, Investing with Purpose, a show where we have real conversations with the people who are driving change in our community. And speaking of real conversations, I'm very honored to have my friend on today, Mr. David Owen Cord. How are you, David? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing, Tyler? I am awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on. You and I have had the opportunity to be in an executive group together. I've got to know you a little bit over the last couple of years and kind of watch from the outside of you guys have been on a really cool journey in building out this, you know, longstanding organization, but taking it in a new direction. So you're co-CEO at Avanti Software. So before we get into, this is an episode of Follow the Money, so we're going to do exactly that. But before we get in, let's jump in the elevator. Tell us what what what, what is an Avanti and, uh, you know, what, what, what do we need to know about it? <laughs> Sure. Uh, so Avanti Software is a human capital management software provider. Uh, you know, okay, what does that mean? It really means we provide <laughs> companies with technology to support their employees. So we provide payroll, workforce management, which is sometimes referred to as time and attendance or scheduling software, and then HR and recruiting and onboarding. So you can kind of think about it as the software to support the full life cycle of an employee from the point when you hire them till in theory when they retire. Okay. So typically in a, in a a less than optimal environment, I would have different platforms doing these four tasks. You guys have brought it all together to one, one platform to make my life easier as the, as the, as the client. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think there's a lot of advantages to having certain components uh, tied together. So really what I mean by that is we are natively integrated. So when let's say you have an organization that has a manager that uh, approves employees shifts. Well, once that shift approval is completed, it automatically rolls right into payroll as opposed to, for example, if you have two different systems where maybe you need to approve the time, then somehow export that information, import it into a payroll software and add a couple different steps to the process. So you got a lot of advantage of having some of that integration. With that said, I think we've seen in the last couple of years just the crazy proliferation and innovation around, call it, employee experience tools. So we, we are, I would say, conscious of the fact that you can't do everything perfectly. So we don't try and do everything, but we try and do some of the core pieces really well. And then we try and make it easy so that if an organization does have another tool that can plug in well, we kind of can make it easy to connect. So a great example is a lot of clients might have, say, a learning management system, which is something we don't provide. We try and make it easy so that that information can flow into Avanti. So you can, you know, if you want to capture, say, that a employee's completed a course and that's relevant for them or their employee profile, you can make sure that information is captured. Oh, okay. The one password to rule them all kind of mindset because God, yeah. we all get lost in, and, and the reality in a busy day, the more platforms we have to log into, the more platforms get missed or overlooked or the updates that don't, that don't get made. And you know, the good old garbage in garbage out. If you don't, if you don't capture it somewhere, you can't use it. Can't, can't benefit from that later. Totally. And, and we're, we really target mid market in Canada. And for us, that usually means a hundred to 150 employees on the lower end up to yeah. You know, I, I would say 2,500, but really our sweet spot is probably in that 200 to 1,500. And what's interesting is in that size group, you really have seen just this explosion of tools in the last five to 10 years. There's just, there's literally a SaaS tool for everything. And I saw some, you know, I can't remember if it was Gardner or Forrester or some interesting research, but it's something like, you know, the average company with 500 employees has something like 350 tools, <laughs> which is just <laughs> wild. Like it's, it's, you know, if you think about that, it's, um, yeah, it's kind of comical to your point to manage it all. And uh, it's, a, it's a real problem. 
Well, the argument might be that it doesn't get managed at all. <laughs> that feels like this feels like a different podcast for a different day. So we'll be careful yeah. not to go too far. Yeah. So get some real clarity and just to set the stage, you guys have been around for, and I know your role in the company has been in, I think since 2016, 2017, but this is a 40 year old company, correct? Totally. So it was actually founded in 1980, um, roots here in Calgary. And yeah, it's definitely, um, well-established, mature, professionalized business. So it's it's quite an interesting journey we've been on, if you think about it, and, and maybe as history. Um, so the business was acquired in 2016, uh, led by my business partner, Amin Lani, and a group of investors, of which I was one at the time. And really, that was kind of the, the changeover, as we saw from a, a individual who had helped found, run the business for a long time successfully, and then was ready to move into a next phase of life. And was looking for a, I call it a happy home for the business. And, and I think that really fortunately worked out for, for both of us and um, that we were able to find a great business with amazing potential and wanted to keep growing and investing in it. And he was able to find you know a, a good home and, and a way to kind of exit the business and enjoy a different phase of life as well. I appreciate that. I love the conversation we're having today around follow the money because we obviously have talked to both investor side and investees and startups and people that are looking kind of for that, you know, that first $500,000 check. You guys just did a $25 million raise. And in context, I want to take my hats off to your founder because I was looking at some graphs this morning. In 1980, wasn't our interest rates around 19 or 20% or something insane if you look at, you know, where we are now? So anybody who had the... Um, uh, uh, self-confidence to start a business in 1980. <laughs> yeah. yeah, gumption to go out there with a 20% interest rate compared to where we are today. So talk to us a little bit about the raise and let's unpack some of the you know challenges or even uh, arguably, and yeah. I think in your, in your press release, it said this has been a bootstrapped company for 40 yeah. years. You guys came in, you did the acquisition, then all of a sudden like, and 25 million, depending on where you sit in the world, it's a, it's, it's a real number. Mm. Totally. And, and you know, it's been an interesting journey, I would say for us. Um, what I mean by that is both Amin and I have a background and experience in finance. So we both came up in a combination of investment banking and kind of mega cap private equity. And so the, the kind of finance side or the concepts of capital structure is, is actually an area we're quite comfortable with and have a lot of respect for. And in some ways that has actually probably made us almost uh, more maybe cynical or skeptical to a certain degree of some <laughs> okay. of the venture capital out there. And, and the reason I say that is I've seen some of the negative repercussions of VC money. And, and sometimes that can be a, I'll call it a growth at any cost type of mentality. It's let me just grow as fast as I can. Let me blow as much money as possible in pursuit of that growth. And in the instances where that works really well and you can sustain that, it's typically a fantastic outcome for employees, for shareholders, for the community, for, for everyone involved. But of course, you hear about the big successes, the big wins, you don't hear about the company that was pursuing that growth at, at all costs and then hit a hiccup. And then what happened when you hit a hiccup or a bump in the road and so to speak, you know, what, how, how was the situation evolving then? How was the partnership um, dynamics at that stage? And so I think to a certain extent, we almost had a, you know, let's avoid outside capital at all costs because we wanted to, to frankly maintain control and utmost direction and I think in some ways that was naive truthfully and over time what we came to appreciate was what outside capital can do is really help you pursue some of the really great opportunities to deploy capital at great returns and achieve great things in the business at a faster pace. I actually think we, we could have taken an approach of let's not raise outside money, 
let's keep bootstrapped, let's continue to proceed as we have been, and that would have been actually a successful strategy. However, we also said, it feels like there's a really important opportunity in this industry to do something unique, to do something differentiated, and by raising outside capital, we can actually get there faster. So we actually didn't think necessarily that the end outcome is totally different, but we felt like this really gives us an opportunity to get there at a quicker pace, which is something we were excited to do, our employees are excited to do, our clients are excited about us to get to. So in some ways it felt like we almost, it was a, kind of that slow hunch discussion of, well, what if we raised capital? And then every kind of period that came up, it, it felt more and more compelling over time. And we just saw there was so much opportunity in the business, it, it would felt, felt almost silly to say, why wouldn't we give ourselves the best shot at, at going after that big dream? And that's kind of how we wrapped our head around it. And happy to chat through kind of our experience raising capital. I think it was fairly unique relative to, I think, some other businesses and really, really happy with the outcome, but it was definitely some learning. So I think if I could go back, I would, I would maybe approach it a little bit differently in, in some regards. Oh, I've got about 30 questions I want to ask you now, David. Um, starters, um, is there also a factor, and this I was just reading some of your content this morning, and this the trend of digitization in the HR and in, in the space that you're in. I don't want to just oh, I don't want to just use HR because I know it's broader than that. But I did read that there was a slow to adopt kind of tendency in this industry to like on prem and do it the way we've done it. And hey, one thing I learned really early in business: do not disrupt how payroll flows or how you involved like that is danger zone right there. Miss it, you know, two hours late on the paycheck, you get fifty percent of your company calls you and asks you what the hell's going on. Um, so I'm assuming was. Is there any part of this, like when you say do it faster, was that part of a defensive strategy as well of like, let's get on this because this is now happening and there's always competitors. It's like, if it's a good idea, you're not the only one chasing it. Mm. Definitely. Although I would, I almost think about it a little bit as a, you know, aggressive is probably not the right word, but maybe offensive strategy. And, and the reason I say that <laughs> is, okay. uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's, I, you know, nodding and shaking and smiling and agreeing as you talked about not screwing up payroll because the reality is it's a mission critical function you know you, believe me you don't want to piss people off and one way to piss them off is to not pay them or not pay them accurately and so in some ways it's it's the type of function that needs to run and it needs to run well and it needs to run in some way perfectly and so you definitely have a cohort of users administrators strategists and payroll who are generally hesitant to make big changes that could negatively affect what is a mission critical function. So with that said, it's actually interesting in the industry because you often hear of, of some of the big book Goliaths or kind of giant organizations that we compete with, which are the big global public organizations. They're all over the, the North America and, and generally the world. But there's actually a, quite a fragmented industry in Canada. So there's about 150 payroll providers even the biggest provider today does not have the majority of the market. And one thing that I, I find is really fascinating is if you think about you know, how software is sold today, typically you see almost exclusively cloud software offered. While in payroll, just under 50% of the industry is actually still using on-premises version of the software of whichever provider they're using. And so in some ways, there's actually this big, in our opinion, tailwind and wave of clients or organizations in the mid-market recognizing that it is a better solution to be on the cloud and shifting towards that. And that actually is 
part of the the reason we raised capital was to help us accelerate and do that really well make that transition which is a hard transition for a lot of organizations make it ideally as smooth as possible because if you think about it taking a, a organization who's used to running on-premise software for a long time shifting into the cloud well there are a ton of advantages it's it's intimidating right it's scary it's a big it's change still change it's still change management it's still new and it's change management against a risk that there's a very low tolerance for any oh sorry we're just figuring out our new system you screwed up I want to get into the lessons learned and kind of the journey of raising capital but I'm going to make the audience I'm going to tease them I'm going to make them wait for a little bit you and I had a little bit of a chat offline and I think it really comes back to uh, when you bought the business and I'm curious about you actually there was an acquiring price you bought and again I don't want to get into get into whatever I'll get into whatever level of details but we talked about a couple things one this phenomenon of the amount of businesses or business owners that are nearing that end of life or end of life for their role in their business <laughs> end of life well we're going to roll it up and so it's like logan's run you know when you reach a certain age no more business for you there's people looking to do something different and take advantage of a different phase of their life and these amazing businesses that they built so that's a cool phenomenon that's happening which i think is creating a lot of opportunity so back when you guys bought the business uh 2016 and kind of you know you were an investor and then you got involved as the co-ceo was this a you know pay off the owner and inject a bunch of money into the business to grow? Or did you guys kind of step in and pick it up where it was and then say, hey, what can we do off cash flow for the next few years? And let's just talk about this phenomenon of you know your perspective on a bunch of businesses, really cool businesses are going to be coming up for sale in the next bunch of years. And then maybe a little bit about when you guys bought it what some of that was like, and then we can get into actually the 25 million, the wave. We're gonna make the audience wait a little bit to hear yeah. the, the juicy bits. Let's <laughs> no, get, build the uh, suspense up. I'm on it, the edge of my really, seat, I don't know about, I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> so it definitely was a uh, pick up the business and continue as is. So at, at the time of the acquisition, we did not inject a whole bunch of capital you know, in addition to the, the cash flow that the business was generating. And I think to a certain degree, um, you know, at, at the time of acquisition, you know, you're, you're to a certain extent naive, you don't quite know the business as well, you're still learning, you don't necessarily appreciate how big the opportunity set could be. And I think, you know, obviously the, the business was acquired for a reason, we, we saw a great opportunity. At the same time, I think over time, our, our conviction that there really is something special here in the mid-market in Canada, and there really is an opportunity to provide some of what the sophisticated, large public global enterprises do, but do it in a way that's really user-centric, user-friendly, intuitive, that really there's there's kind of a missing gap there. We sometimes say that the kind of missing middle, you know, if you think about both ends of that spectrum, we've got some great SMB providers, um, so software providers for payroll and HR, that really serve the kind of sub 100 market, and it's typically quite simple, it's intuitive, there's some great solutions, then you have the kind of large global enterprise that serve, you know, really complex union, multi-jurisdiction, everything you can imagine. But it's generally done in, in more of a clunky kind of, you know, picture big ERP style way. Yeah. And so in our opinion, kind of serving some of that middle was kind of a slow hunch that is only built over time. So day one of the acquisition, it wasn't like here's this longer term okay. vision. It was kind of like, okay, let's let's run the business and let's learn, let's see what's possible. Let's continue to serve clients well as we've done for a long time and that should reward us. And then each successive year, it was like, oh, whoa, there's this really special, amazing, cool opportunity. And, and I think that, com you know, that appreciation and respect for that also led eventually to the, we gotta go after this. We gotta go after this using outside capital because this is a really meaningful opportunity. 
I appreciate coming in because you recognize the opportunity, but also the appreciation of sometimes you got to walk a few miles in those shoes to say, oh, okay, I actually feel more comfortable and I see what the opportunity is. And you know, guys did that over a few years. So before we get, you know, pivot back to the business, put your 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 past, your 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 investor history. Talk to me a little bit about some of this phenomenon and what's happening, or certainly what you're seeing happen around this investment in these existing established businesses and kind of where you see that going. Just as a, it sounds like it's even its own kind of asset class almost to a certain extent. You know, it actually is. It's a, I really do believe it's kind of this burgeoning new asset class. And I think you're going to hear more and more about it in the coming years and decades. So as an example, I, I believe at the time when Amin kind of finished school, he learned about the concept at school. I'd never heard of it. Um, it was typically referred to as a search fund. So the idea is you put together a fund with the sole intent of searching, acquiring, and then operating a single business. And typically, I really do think it's it's a kind of wonderful win-win scenario because it typically is someone who has built a business over a lifetime for whatever reason does not have a natural successor, either in the business or a family member or someone else. And so they're looking to you know enjoy for lack of a better phrase, the fruits of their labor, find someone to take over the business and give it a great home. And so you really do find this symbiotic, um, someone who's looking to move on, someone who's eager, hungry to operate a business, but maybe isn't the type of person who says, oh, I've got this crazy, big, amazing idea, I'm gonna start something up. And I know in some way that's the type of entrepreneurship we, we often talk about and celebrate and value, but I actually think it's it's a very fascinating and you know different, but still valuable type or style of entrepreneurship to find something, acquire it, and then continue to really build upon what already exists. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, uh, both Amin and I have invested in other search funds. Um, we each sit on the board of, of different search funds that have acquired different businesses. You know, um, Colorific is one I'm involved in, which is a powder coating manufacturer. It's another great example of a business where, you know, founder had been around forever, um, was ready to move on, you know, wanted to find a great home, was able to do that. And now we've seen a lot of the success of that business of someone who just has a different phase and stage of life and, and might be eager to kind of try something different for better or worse and, and to just see the outcome. And I think if you think about the demographic landscape in Canada and the volume of folks who are in that kind of 50 to 65 age range and given the volume of them, how few of them actually have a really clear succession plan or a really clear, here's what I'll do next, despite a willingness or desire to retire and enjoy that different stage of life, creates a pretty meaningful kind of gap or, or maybe better way to say it is a pretty meaningful opportunity. So I really do think you're gonna hear more and more about this kind of idea or concept or, or phenomenon. If I was going to use an image specifically for this phase of our conversation, it's the 747 with like the, the space shuttle on the back of it. And when they took it up to like, you know, 30 or 40,000 feet and then, well, you're already up this high, the rest, now it's easier to get you out into orbit. Sorry that the whole time you're talking, I just have this mental <laughs> image of that, of like starting from the ground up yeah. is really challenging. And there's a lot of yeah. factors and, you know, a lot of people that I talk to who've built businesses are like, oh my God, if I knew what I know now, I don't know, or I would have done it differently. <laughs> and, you know, like not every phase of growth of a business can be challenging, but 
starting, just the amount of infrastructure you need just to get a business to function, whether it's even the platform that you provide, having that in place versus having to set that up from scratch, like all those things that can really be distracting from a core idea or a core opportunity to, to, to grow, which clearly you guys have done. Okay, we've made the audience wait now for 20 minutes. Let's talk about the 25 million. You guys, I'm picturing that this was maybe and I use this word very respectfully, easier for you because you came from this background. I, you know, I recently had a, a local startup, uh, Nicholas Beek from Helsum, who I'm a big fan of what they've done. They just raised 16 million and Nick told me on the show and offline, he's like, Tyler, I was petrified because we'd bootstrapped this thing since 2008. I didn't really know the community. I didn't know who to talk to because I kind of duct taped myself to my chair for 90 days. And he goes, thank God I didn't have to go on the road. I could actually talk to people online. So I just taking his experience versus yours of two gentlemen, you know, yourself and Amin that came from this area. Did that help? Did that give you guys a leg up? Like you said, it actually in some ways made you slightly cynical, which I appreciated that. But let's talk about when you yeah. went from the idea to, okay, we're going to go out and actually start kicking some tires and see what interest we can get. So it definitely, I think where, where it helped was so, you know, while neither of us had specifically worked in kind of growth equity, venture capital, having been on the other side of the table, being at kind of large cap private equity, you have a lot of experience being in those scenarios where, you have a management team presenting to you and you're deciding whether to invest. So in some ways it, it takes away that intimidation factor and gives you a certain degree of comfortability around knowing what to expect in the process and knowing and seeing what has worked well. And, and granted, again, different different flavors and kind of large cap private equity, but, but still the comfort zone was quite high. So I would actually say it's funny, my uh, insecurity and and you know, the learning curve I experienced starting out as the co-CEO at Avanti was actually much more severe and significant than it was pursuing raising capital because to a certain degree, raising capital, that's that's my bread and butter. You know, that's an area of, that. of expertise. And so I definitely think it, it added a certain comfort, which was great. However, I, I, here's one, I'll, I'll call it first learning, which I, I appreciate now, but probably, um, hurt us because of that attitude of, well, we know this really well, we know this side of the business. You know, um, there's kind of this this uh, competitive market within VC. And as a result, you see a lot of VC and growth firms cold calling or reaching out to companies looking to create those relationships. So we're typically seeing, at least on a weekly basis, some type of inbound from, call it a VC firm, or someone at the VC firm saying, hey, you know, I see what you guys are doing and I'm really curious to learn more and do you want to get together and, you know, do you want to start building a relationship? And typically they try and put something in there of, you know, even if you aren't raising capital right now, sometimes these relationships take years and, and I think that would be a great opportunity for us to get to know each other. And every single time I saw one of those emails, I'm like, I mean, we're not wasting our time with this crap. Like, we, you know, we know this <laughs> stuff. Let's not talk to people and, and, you know, you know, a little hyperbolic, but generally I really was, you know, had this view of this is not going to be a good use of our time. And you can spend a lot of time. I mean, if I was doing that, I could be spending 30 to two hours every week just chatting with folks. And I just saw that as so low quality relative to the out, uh, the outcome or, or the payout. Now, we, we ended up going through our capital raise and we were really deliberate and we, we know, having seen and heard experiences, that it's not just about finding the capital, it's actually about finding the partner. And especially in, in kind of the environment we're in right now, which is a very, I'll call it, 
company-friendly capital raising environment. And what I mean by that is it's a good time to be raising money and, and maybe a little less so today than it was six or 12 months ago, but, but still generally quite favorable. And as a result, you know, th there's lots of money out there. So you want to make sure you understand exactly the type of individual or individuals or fund that you're, you know, getting married to, to a certain extent. You know, a lot of these relationships, they're not going to be, a, it's not a six month thing. It's not a one, two year thing. I mean, it might be five years, maybe 10 years, depending on, you know, how things evolve. So you want to be really certain you're choosing the right partner. So we ended up going out to a very select few of individuals, primarily who are folks who we knew through our network or had kind of one degree of separation and received from a really kind of complimentary introduction. And what happened in the end is we ended up selecting a partner that we had built a relationship with over several years, which was round 13, which is obviously ironic because I was so against spending time building any relationships with VC firms and the partner we ended up getting most comfortable with and working with is someone who it's actually the partner who worked there was a former colleague who worked with me at, at Onyx when I was there. and. You know, when when he had shifted his role over to VC, and you know, we had I was at Avanti. It was kind of like, oh, we're kind of in the same base to a certain extent. We had caught up, and we had started to form some of that relationship. And so, honestly, if I if I could go back and do it again, I actually would. Or I, if I was giving advice to anyone, I'd say, you know what, be be selective. Don't take every single one of those inbound calls. But in reality, I actually do think it was it is really worth the time to kind of build the relationship with a potential investor over months, maybe even years, because candidly, it's a great way to find out, you know, you're not just getting the sexy sales pitch they're going to throw to you. And every single investor you meet is going to tell you, we add so much value, here's our great references, and so to speak. So, you know, to the extent you can actually kind of form your own high conviction opinion through those that relationship building before you actually need anything out of the relationship, I actually think it's time really well spent even though I, I would say I learned that in hindsight. And, and what's interesting is we, we probably chatted with four to five parties who we were serious about, um, you know, having a conversation about raising capital with. And the ones, you know, at every single party that we had a pre-existing relationship with ended up coming to the table with a term sheet. And the one party who didn't was the one we had met two weeks before. And you know, maybe that's it's not a huge set of data points. Maybe it's coincidence, but yeah, I do but think. It's, but it's the, your, but it's your data points. It's it real matters, data points, right? Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you know, how, how critical for yeah. you? Like I've talked to a lot of uh, investors and fund men and, and people who lead funds, and they always oh, this is our thesis. This is who we're after. How important it while you're having those conversations is to kind of create your own thesis. And did you guys were you guys like you had a gut feel of what you wanted and what you didn't want, or did you actually sit there? you know what I mean in a room and some of your senior team or whoever and say hey no no what these are the key points like these are the characteristics almost like that role description or the perfect fit document I guess thesis is the right way to have it did you guys do that deliberately or was more did you rely on kind of your own feel and kind of alignment or was it a document you created combination I, I wasn't so formalized as like you know here's the rating grid here's the, criteria, box. here's the box but it was hey let's talk about when when we say we're seeking the right partner what does that mean we did have conversations about what it meant to be the right partner and you know coming back to my earlier comment around cynicism of, of some of the VC model it was we were pretty clear that we didn't want someone who is going to force us to grow at all costs. We wanted someone who was going to support Amin and I. And for us, I, I think a lot of our feeling was at the end of the day, while we, we respect um, there's a lot of value that can come from having an outside looking in 
um, party or opinion, that kind of investor at the board level. At the end of the day, we run the business and we want to be able to run the business the way we see fit, frankly. I, I don't want to show up to a board meeting and have the venture capitalists tell me, this is what you need to do. And, and in reality, I think what that translates to from a more qualitative standpoint is finding a relationship where you would never get to a state where our partner on the other end says, you need to go do this. And I think that's what we found and, and we're extremely happy with it, which is kind of the more collaborative supporter model as opposed to the high and mighty VC who has all the insights and answers. And I think especially because we have been on the other side of the table and we know, you know, being on the investor side, you're always pitching, here's how I can add value. Here's the type of insights we can bring you. And I think there there's a lot of merit to that, but there also is some you know, salespersonship in that, right? You're, you're, you're pitching, you know, you're, it's a competitive market. The investors want to pitch too. So you kind of got to weave through like, what do you really care about? And for us, it was a collaborative supportive partner, but not a uh, high and mighty dictator. And, and in some ways saying that I'm like, you know, duh, doesn't that feel obvious? But I will tell you, we, we had some kind of not many, but at least one or two intro calls with well-known VC investors and left the call thinking like, okay, I know, this won't work. This isn't going to, we're not a good fit here. It, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all dating in one way or another uh, to a certain extent, going on dates and going, hmm, no, I don't yeah. know, it's red, red, red flags. Um, so I'm curious, obviously the attitude and the energy and the, the swagger and potentially the potential bravado of a partner was not what you guys were looking for from telling you what to do. But how much also does that really tie back to how the deal is structured? Because again, control versus influence versus, well, I can, I've got more levers than you, so I'm going to make you do this. Like, How much of that was a factor for you guys and also with your experience, how critical is it to how you set up that money and how it flows in? I'm sure that plays a big part of whether you get a say in doing what they tell you to or quote unquote not. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, we were actually pretty clear on the terms should so we the way we think about that is twofold the terms of the agreement should mirror the spirit of what we're trying to do here and the spirit of what we're trying to do here is form a real partnership so i don't want to say i'm in a form a real partnership with you have you send over a term sheet and then a week later get your your kind of actual you know shareholder agreement or lpa or whatever it might be and see 50 clauses that don't reflect that spirit whatsoever and are just the stock generic you know here's the typical agreement and this is what you should sign. And I think to a certain extent, we were pretty clear up front of, you know, we're actually not trying to maximize the highest dollar or the most amount of money we can raise. We're actually really trying to solve for that partnership angle and having some flexibility and control. And so we actually ironed out even at the term sheet stage. So the way it typically works is you receive a term sheet, which tends to be more high level. Here's kind of the structure at a loose degree. Here's the valuation. Here's how much money we're thinking. And sometimes there's ranges on those pieces. But when we received those, we actually went back and said, okay, let's talk about, we don't have to you know, negotiate the legal document verbally, but let's talk about the big commercial points that are gonna come up when we move to the next phase. Let's just make sure we're kind of aligned on that before we actually go there. Because no one wants to get to the place where you're surprised. And I think to a certain degree, that's again an area of familiarity for Amin and I. We were pretty clear on what the agreement should look like. We have been on the other side of those. And so we were pretty deliberate in selecting someone who was gonna operate as a partner in all stages of the agreement. And I will tell you one of the biggest I'll call it pieces of relief or, or maybe pleasure is is after moving from that, okay, let's sign a term sheet with one party and let's move to getting to a final agreement. 
everything was as stated. It, it felt it felt very partnership-like. Every every time we had to discuss or negotiate or figure out a point, it wasn't. I'm gonna grind this person down to the best outcome for me. It was like, yeah, what feels reasonable here? What's fair? What's right to do? And I really would say, you know, kudos to to round thirteen, kudos to Brand and the partner on it. it. It really was a truly great experience and relationship from start to finish, which I think really matters. No, I appreciate that. Like so much of it is the technicality and the legality, but so much of it is still feel like it's still doing deals with other group with other humans. Where's Where's Round Thirteen based out of? I didn't do my research on them. Mm. They're based out of Toronto. Um, they definitely do deals across Canada. I, I know, um, for example, the partner on on our deal is is also an investor in a couple of companies in Vancouver. So it's it's definitely you know cross national, but but uh, headquartered out of Toronto. And curious and Calgary, a Western and Alberta based question. I know you have roots in Ontario and I'm assuming a lot of your relationships come from there. Was there conversations with any potential investors in Western Canada or in Alberta? You know, there wasn't. And that was definitely not a, hey, let's not talk to Western Canada. Um, it, in, actually, I shouldn't say there wasn't. We, we did chat with one VC firm out of Vancouver. Um, we tried to chat with one VC firm in Calgary and we're never able to get connected. But just to be blunt, that the volume of firms is is a lot lower. Um, the volume of capital is a lot lower. Now, with that said, I, I think you know, as you've highlighted rightly, so I think a lot on your show, like there's a lot going on in Alberta and Calgary tech, and so I'm pretty optimistic that's going to change and transform meaningfully in the coming years. But just bluntly, today, it's 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 actually I would have loved to meet someone locally who who could kind of have supported us or fit that partnership mold we were looking for and. We just we didn't find someone or, or there wasn't as many parties to chat with. And so it, it didn't work out that way for us, despite the fact that we probably would have really or not probably we really would have you know valued or enjoyed that. I'm assuming also when you're looking for money, it is a bit of a borderless conversation and that's the beauty of the world we live in. Like who's the right partner and if they happen to be in Toronto and you're a national company. So it's not like, you know, I, I know we, we, we have, we're fortunate to steal you away from Toronto now that you, and now you live here <laughs> as I am a very pro content importation yeah. to our, to our amazing province. But the reality is you're running a national business and just cause your office or your desk happens to sit here, it's kind of, I would say it's kind of irrelevant when you get into these conversations. That's right. And look, the reality is I know you and I have talked a lot about this shift of the distributed model, which is something we had actually started on the journey towards toward COVID and then really accelerated during that, that kind of COVID phase. And at this point, we're probably 50% of our employee base is spread outside of Calgary. So it already feels like we really, I do think of us very much as a Canadian business, a Canadian company, despite the fact that we have a, a meaningful concentration of employees in Calgary. I don't think of us as a Calgary business. We are really a Canadian business first. Which I love because that's the amazing thing about it. You know, the world we live in now, even the world we lived in three years ago, the ability to be anywhere as long as you provide value and service. Anyway, that's a it's my own views. I think I choose to find the positives in COVID, and I think that moved us down a road we were already headed down, but it accelerated it and got a lot of people left. That'll never work. We got, we got that wiped off the table, which I'm which I'm okay with. I don't like can'ts. Um, hey, what's the what was your timeline from when you guys said okay, like there's there's kicking it around the office between you guys over over a glass of wine, then there's like okay, we're gonna go out and have conversations. What was the timeline from start to finish uh, roughly speaking so uh and actually there's a, a good i guess tip and, and one thing i've seen a few others not do which i i think is something we actually did do well is 
Um, so, so timeline from when we first started saying, you know, kicking around, you know, at lunch, should we do this? Yep. That was quite slow. That that took a lot of conversations, noodling. Once we got serious and said, okay, we want to raise capital. We want to raise capital by this date. We kept a pretty tight deadline, and we were pretty clear about that. So I think we started having very preliminary first intro chats in September. And what we told people is, because everyone asks you, what's your timeline is, we said, we want to have a commercial deal done by the end of the calendar year. It's okay if the month of January and we slip into January, Feb in terms of buttoning up all the documents, but I want to finish this calendar year knowing who my partner is, knowing at what valuation and knowing how much money we're raising. And I'm really actually quite happy that we were so explicit and deliberate about the timeline because what I've seen on the other side is some folks are kind of get to that stage where they're thinking, okay, I'm going to raise capital and they kind of start to go out and explore without that concrete timeline. And you, you lose a lot of leverage to be candid. You know, it's helpful if you're the one uh, who owns or manages the process as opposed to letting the investors be the ones to dictate the timeline. Because one of two things will happen. The investor will inevitably take more time because you can always do more diligence, you can always learn more. Or you can always two. drag the company through the through the deal room. <laughs> yeah, you know, we need exactly. this and we need that. And, and I've been in the room with you when you gave that advice of like, no, no, we're done. We're not doing any more. We're going to do a deal or not. Like that, This comes down to just good negotiation and actually playing the game a little bit, right? Totally. And, and you know, it, it's, um, it, it's not to be manipulative or anything. It's really just you want to control the process for your own sake. It's actually too, being right? a little bit more straight up about it for, with everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's very deliberate. And I think what some people don't realize is once you start having the conversations, like it snowballs, you're in it. And, and what I've seen a few times is someone doesn't quite realize, they're like, oh, maybe I'll explore raising money. And they start to have a conversation and then Five months later, they're like, oh my God, I raised money. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's almost like they fell into it. Um, and, and I think that can happen because keep in mind, right? You have, you have uh, people who are responsible for deploying capital from their funds and they're in the business of investing money. And so yeah. they're really good at it. <laughs> so if you, you, you kind of want to make sure once you start those conversations, you're, you're serious about wanting to it. You're not just kind of kicking the can because often you kick the can and then all of a sudden you've sold a portion of your company <laughs> right and so yeah and remember yeah you, you're, you're on the, they have quotas and you're on there and you're on the target list right like there's to remember that and not to make it cheap and dirty it but everybody has an objective and everybody has kpis that they have to reach how much time did it take from you was it 10 percent of your life out of the business if you're if 100 of your business life is the business what was the what was the commitment and did you how much did you balance that out obviously you know co-ceos did one of you lead it because i've also heard this can real real you gotta be careful because this can all of a sudden you're like oh shit, four months, I haven't been paying attention to my business or it's been on autopilot or all those different things. Mm. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting actually because prior to us really engaging in the conversations, we did a lot of work up front on getting all the materials ready. So we had a pretty high degree of confidence in here's what people are going to want to see, here's what they're going to want to ask, here's the presentations we're going to need. So we actually front loaded a lot of that work. When we were doing that front loading, I'd say it was 50 to 75% of my and Amin's time. Amin probably led a little more on, on that material creation. He's definitely got a strength and skill in, in some of that storytelling through kind of visuals and numbers. With that said, the back half, so after we had finished our, okay, we've got a commercial deal, let's move into negotiating and all doing all the technicalities, the legal documents, probably shifted to about 25% of my time. 
but close to 100% of my time mentally. So I found interesting is even once the deal was kind of agreed upon, it was really hard to detach from how can I you like how can I stay focused on the business and not focus on getting the deal done, so to speak. And that was frustrating for me because truthfully for me, I, I you know, I, I'm really engaged, interested, excited about figuring out who who's gonna be our partner, how much money are we raising, what's the valuation. But when it gets to the the legal documents, I tend to have a tendency of, ah, you know, this is feels administrative, even though it's not, it's totally not, but that is that is my own inclination. And so it was tough for me where I was like, ah, now my mind share is being sucked into this this kind of big, you know annoying frustrating thing and and it's a real thing like i really would say for probably two months in january and or maybe december and january it was hard to be as focused on the business as i would have liked to normally so it it, it is a tough balance for sure was there anything and this is a weird question of what I want to ask, which is a weird way to say it, like, did you start spending the money before you got it? And that's a weird question because I also know you and know that that wouldn't be how you operate. But once you saw this getting real, did the, what, did you keep these guys on private lockdown? Did you guys start going, well, wow, if this is coming, we need to actually get our plans. Like, we need to start getting all the cars on the tracks and heading in the right direction. Like, how did you balance that? Or did you keep it on solid lockdown until anything can fall through at the 11th hour kind of mindset? <laughs> No, I. Uh, it's funny they say that you, you give me too much, um, too much of a compliment there because we absolutely <laughs> did start. I don't know about maybe not spending the money, but you know, you no, know. No, no, I appreciate we, the nature <laughs> in which I asked the question. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I mean, no, honestly, it definitely influenced our how we were operating the business, and really where you know translating that to specifics, we we just started hiring, and, and because we knew or we we had such a high degree of confidence we would be able to raise the money that we knew part of the reason we were raising the money was to invest in people and add additional folks to the business. And so we also know there's a huge time cost, right? If, if you know you can add someone today because you need them to be you know, up and running and ramped in a certain time period, like there's no substitute for time and no sacrifice for it. So to the extent we knew we needed someone already in January, even if we didn't close the deal till the first week of February, we kind of felt like it's actually a prudent, thoughtful, strategic thing to do. And, and you know, I, I alluded to this earlier, just specifically to, as it relates to our business, a big, uh, a, a portion of the capital was really to support our clients in this transition from the on-premise deployment to get on our cloud deployment. And so we knew we wanted, we didn't want to wait to raise the money because we'd have lost five months of a really important year in which we're supporting clients through that. So we started to add folks and create a kind of dedicated team to support our clients in that journey. We started to do that once we had an extremely high degree of confidence, we would be able to raise capital. We would do so at terms we were happy with. Like once we knew subject to, you know, a black swan type event, we would be okay. We started to invest in those folks. Okay, that which which makes sense because you're right. It's a, in one way or another, they're all. It's always a people-based business. If you don't have the people, you don't hire them today and have them fully engaged and up and running or utilized tomorrow. Being that you guys were a forty-year business, how how detailed of forward-facing plans did you have to like? Did you have, like? Here's exactly how we're going to spend the twenty-five million. Here's our five-year projections. Like, how yeah. detailed did you guys have to get into to tell that story? And I'm just comparing that to someone who's in, you know, seed round or even coming into their Series A when still a lot of it is still a little bit of like I rubbed the crystal ball and here's what I think is going to happen. <laughs> it was definitely. Uh, and this is probably somewhat of our nature, you know, around being 
finance folks by background and, and finance pretty, geeks just say it yeah, it's finance yeah. geeks. <laughs> there was a lot of excel modeling and i will tell you that okay uh, nice. no, yeah, well, we, we go, go like with what you know go with what you know <laughs> yeah. I, i'd say we we knew for sure there were kind of three big buckets where we wanted to spend the capital and we probably brought it down to a, a very specific degree here's the number of folks you know as an example product and engineering was one area we really wanted to invest in to support the growth of the business we, we if an investor pinned us down and said okay so what does that mean product engineering like we could say well in this year we want to hire these roles in these you know in this time frame so it was very specific i don't think we necessarily needed that to accomplish the goal but it almost helped us because i and look we're i'm quite conscious of every every financial forecast every model that's ever been built has been wrong (laughs) that that is the nature that also doesn't mean it's not valuable right going through the exercise of planning preparing thinking through how that money could be spent was actually really valuable to us. Even though I know when we look back five years, I'm sure we'll laugh and say, oh yeah, you know, how did we think that was exactly how it would unfold? And, and that's okay. Like, I think it was still still a good exercise for us. I appreciate that, the details of like, also being an established business, like perceived as less risky than a startup or you know someone who's even in very er- early stage. So we touched on a few lessons learned. Any big kind of takeaways you want to kind of throw out there for somebody in your exact position, an established business, or whether someone's coming in to purchase or you're, you're, going, for, you're going for money and you're an established business and it's something you've never really done besides maybe some minor bank financing, like you're going for a big swing. You kind of given a few, any big takeaways that you would want of someone to have told you six months ago i think you know i touched on a few already maybe the only other thing i'd highlight and and especially if someone's listening thinking like well okay i i was not on the finance side before i don't have that same sense of comfort in those negotiations is spend a lot of time talking to folks who have gone through it you know you you referenced you know that uh, um, the helsim like that's that that feeling of being petrified about it a lot of way to i think I think a lot of that intimidation factor is having not gone through it, but honestly, a lot of this follows a very similar pattern and trajectory, regardless of the deal, regardless of the industry. And so to the extent you can find folks, frankly, like myself, I'll throw myself out there if anyone wants to ever connect, like go for coffees, you know, have lunch with people, ask them what their experience was like. You can learn a lot that way. There's not a lot of I'll call it surprises. You know, the, the VC funding round is, is very much a well-worn kind of model. It's yeah. been around for a long time. It's been done hundreds of times. So don't don't feel like you need to invent the wheel. Leverage the experience of others out there and, and you'll be, I think, pleasantly surprised. And the only other thing I'd say is to highlight to someone who's kind of, do I raise money, do I not? I think to the, the extent you can form that opinion without talking to the folks who wanna invest money, the better because they have an inherent bias in wanting to deploy <laughs> capital. So go yeah. talk to other, talk to, you know, board members, talk to your friends, talk to your mentors, but don't, don't engage in that conversation of discovery with someone who's inherently intent on, on being the one to write you a check. Cause you might don't, get, don't, don't ask the car dealer whether, nice. whether, whether you should buy a new car or not. He's going to be well very said. pro buying a new car. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Last question. I always throw it in at the end. It's one of my favorites because I never know where it's going to go. Magic wand. If you could wave a magic wand in Western Canada, specifically about about our market here, that would change something today that have a positive, like it either adds something or knocks something out of the way. Fundamentally, that's going to have a positive impact on our investment, whether that's startup or, you know, all the way through our ecosystem. What would, what what would be your magic wand? Mm. Mm. 
It's funny because I've heard you ask this question and I had a different, I have an answer, but it's probably more related to my personal experience in Calgary and less related to the investment. Um, That's okay. That's all right. Hey, it's your magic well, wand, David. You can wave it anywhere you like. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think. So so as background, you alluded to this, but I, I'm from Toronto, moved out to Calgary did not have an expectation to, to kind of make this home and that that's really changed. Um, I absolutely love it out here. I think it's a wonderful city. I think the, the culture, the environment, the atmosphere in Calgary is just full of energy, full of kindness, full of support. It's, you know, you read a lot of, of um, media that would suggest the otherwise, but I would say my experience here has been extremely positive. And the one thing that that always bugs me still. So if I could change it with my magic wand, it would yep. be, we still have a bit of what I'll call a, the commuter downtown, which means you've got this downtown that just empties out on the weekend. And we've got these big above lot parking lots. And it just, that always irks me because I, I do think a world-class city should have a really vibrant downtown. So if I could, I could wave a wand, I would change that. Now that I've said that, I will say I'm, I'm so, optimistic that we will see that in the next five to ten years if you just look at the number of cranes the number of parking lots turning into condos the number of old bars restaurants that are turning into big mixed commercial residential those to me are all the the kind of burgeoning buds yeah. that sprout and in the future create something really special and so i'm i'm super optimistic we're going to get there but if i could wave my wand i i i wish you could walk you know down steven on saturday afternoon at 2 p.m and not feel like oh i'm i'm in a ghost town here <laughs> i had the same experience when i moved here back into my i drove downtown on a friday night and like it was middle of february but in montreal it would still be busy and i like i literally yeah. saw a tumbleweed blow across the street i'm like <laughs> oh my god where have i moved what have i done clearly it worked out and i stayed and i and i love it but yes i would agree with you that's i i, I fully not that you need my support but i love that magic wand wave so um avanti.ca check you guys out you have an awesome website super informative some great information on there you already kind of threw it out there if someone wants to get a hold of you uh linkedin is that the best way what's your what's yeah, your favorite form way. of uh, yeah, out of out of all the million good. opportunities we have to communicate <laughs> uh, linkedin is usually a winner especially i find that from a, it's the one social media platform i don't necessarily feel dirty and, and shameful after spending time on that's, <laughs> the other uh, ones that's a whole other conversation yeah exactly it's my only social media for that for that reason but yeah yes i, I think that's a best best place to find me fantastic david thanks so much for your time thanks for your insights thanks for the amazing work you do and uh so glad you chose to make calgary home thanks man thank you thanks Tyler. really appreciate being on here it's great